Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to March Atoms. We'll be looking at stating the obvious. There's an aphorism, an old aphorism, if you'll excuse my lapse into the tautological, in the medical literature world which states that everything, even the most obvious things, need to be proved and published at least once. So obvious it might be, but it's a surprisingly good rule of thumb, the genius of the authors being in the appreciation that the inverted commas, obvious, has never been formally proven. If you take Newton's observations on gravity as an example, the argument gains more momentum. The corollary, of course, is that much research effort is spent on reproving the obvious, unnecessarily replicating previous work. That, of course, is an altogether more complicated story. The theme then linking my choices this month is that each paper, one way or another, takes an association we assumed had been proven, and, to be obvious, and finally proves it, or disabuses us of it. This month's journal is also the first of a larger archives, with more pages, and I'd like to think correspondingly broader content, as new sections and international papers gain momentum. I really hope you enjoy it. So let's start by looking at extremes of stature. Managing extremes of height has been driven as much by societal expectation as any other factor. Adult heights over the centuries have increased as a result of enhanced living standards to the point that excess height is almost the norm. When it comes to managing tall stature, there's an elephant in the room. The overlooked obvious is that no one really knows the efficacy of the interventions which have been promoted, or at least no one knows with any degree of precision, as none have been tested in randomised controlled trials. Estimates of effect size are based on individual predicted heights on small numbers of children, and much as we want to believe that the somatostatin analogue, sex steroids and growth plate stapling help, we lack certainty. So in an elegant editorial which is as philosophical as clinical, Peter Heinmarsh examines, extrapolates and contextualises the findings of Godelberg's et al. study on early epiphyseal closure. Changing but still within the endocrine realm, erratic periods don't mean erratic ovulation. Well, isn't that obvious? Or isn't it obvious when a teenager's periods become erratic, then so does her ovulation? Or is that actually the case? While it's known that ovulation becomes more regular with time from menarche, and is more likely to be regular if periods are also regular, no one, remarkably, until now, has studied the patterns between menstrual cycles and objectively measured ovulation. Penner and her colleagues in Western Australia followed a group of 40 girls fulfilling predefined criteria for irregular periods who were originally recruited as part of the Western Australian RAIN pregnancy cohort. Their cycles were diarised on ovulation ascertained by peaks in early morning urine pregnenediol glucuronide creatinine ratios. The urines were collected every day and frozen, so with meticulous attention to detail they had data to be confident in their findings. Of the total of number of girls with erratic periods, 65% had periodic periods, one episode every two months, and the vast majority, 82%, had at least sporadic ovulation. So why is this of more than mere academic interest? Because it shows that, as everyone suspected, erratic periods do not mean that pregnancy can't occur, and that contraceptive advice is just as important, arguably more so, for these girls. Moving focus now to neonatal resuscitation, specifically in low- and middle-income countries. There's no doubt the Helping Babies Breathe neonatal resuscitation programme for low- and middle-income countries has saved thousands of lives already, its beauty being in its simplicity, use of basic airway management and a face mask if necessary. 
Recently, the American Heart Association European Resuscitation Council have mooted the idea of using laryngeal mask airway, or LMA for short, as a first line before endotracheal intubation when ventilation is otherwise ineffective. And in an important randomised control trial, Petovic and his colleagues tested this in Uganda. The participants were midwives attending emergency sections or were already competent in the helping babies breathe techniques and had demonstrated aptitude in the use of the LMA before the trial. All resuscitations were supervised and babies were randomised at delivery to either the face mask or LMA, only to be used in those babies with apnea or gasping at one minute of age. If one method failed, then a switch was made to the other limb. A total of 50 babies, 25 in each arm, were studied. The LMA performed better in all areas, which included time to spontaneous breathing, total ventilation time and rate of non-response. None of the LMA arm babies required a change to the face mask, but 11 of the 25 randomised to the face mask were switched to the LMA on the basis of inadequate ventilation. OK, so this is a small trial, but the findings are compelling, bound to lead to larger studies and potentially, ultimately, a change in practice. Given the huge contribution that early neonatal deaths make to the global burden of disease and the lack of progress in this area over a number of years, this is surely worth exploring. And finally, I'm going to end on another obvious subject, asthma and GO reflux disease. This is an area about which we all have an opinion, but to which the solution is far from clear, the relationship between GOR and asthma. We know of the association and we know of the physiologically seductively plausible pathways which explain this association. These include accentuation of intrathoracic pressure changes, disturbance of the diaphragmatic sphincter, vaguely mediated bronchospasm resulting from irritation of the lower esophagus and gastric-induced cytokine responses. We've followed these leads for decades, for almost as long as we've been disappointed in our enthusiastic attempts to improve asthma control by treating GORD. If you're one of the many, please read De Benedictus's excellent review of the field, in which the obvious, at last, becomes obvious. Thanks for reading, challenging and contributing.